Well, Merry Christmas and welcome to week number three of our Christmas message series, God with us as we are studying uh, Matthew's account of the very first Christmas. And as I've been sharing with you each week, uh, Matthew wrote his gospel with the goal to persuade Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah they had been waiting for, that he was the son of David, that he was their king. You may remember two weeks ago, that's what Matthew's genealogy, what we call the genealogy of grace, was all about. Last week we saw that's why Matthew tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin. And that is why, as we're going to see, he tells us in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, about some strange seekers, about a long search, and about a wicked king. Matthew chapter two, verses one through 12 is about searching for the king. And I want you to join me as I read God's word. We're gonna read it together. If you'll get a copy of God's word out, whether it's paper or whether it's on one of your screens, open it, follow along on the screen behind me as we read God's word. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, They went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord and all God's people say, amen, amen. Well, I think pretty much every one of us knows about the TV game show, Family Feud, right? Um, It's been on TV since before the time of Christ, pretty much. Um, And uh, you know how the the game goes. They survey 100 people with a question and then uh, the families who are competing try to guess the most popular answers. And recently, uh, one of the questions that uh, host Steve Harvey asked was this. When, When someone talks about the king, who might they be referring to? I'm gonna ask you when you hear that, what, who do you think of? I mean, uh, I'll give you the four top answers in a moment, but I'll, first of all, I'll tell you who it wasn't. It wasn't Larry King. Um, it wasn't Don King, you know, with the hair. It, it wasn't the Lion King. It wasn't King Kong. So who, who was it? Who do you think the number one person people thought of when they heard the king was? Well, survey says it was... Elvis. So 
So, who do you think people thought of second when they heard this question? Answer is Jesus. Jesus came in second, and uh, you may think that sounds pretty good, but I have to tell you, Elvis got 81 votes and Jesus got seven. Third uh, answer was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, And the fourth answer was the Burger King, uh, (laughs) our our national monarch. Um, Well, and you probably can recognize this survey tells us something about our culture. But I think when you listen to what Matthew is saying in these 12 verses we've just read, Matthew is showing us that things really haven't changed all that much in the last 2,000 years. Because when Jesus the king was born, most people missed it. Most people were busy with their lives. They were focused on other things. Only a few people actually realized what was happening. And in these verses, uh, Matthew is introducing us to some strange spiritual seekers, these, these people who had interrupted their lives and had sacrificed in a huge way, who had taken great risks, all to find the newborn king. And it raises some questions I wanna ask you today. The first question, most importantly, is have you found the king? And it, it's an enormous question. Have you found the king? Do you have a king? Are, are you actively searching for the king or is the truth you are the king in your life? Automobile manufacturers um, have been promising us self-driving autonomous cars for years and years now. Some of you commuters over the Altamont cannot wait to buy one, right? And you're looking forward to that, but they're not quite there yet. That horizon seems to keep getting pushed out. And I think we can all agree when driverless cars hit the market, it's gonna be an amazing innovation. But I wanna tell you something that's not amazing. And that is a driverless life. That's a life without leadership, a life without a king. The Bible says Jesus talked about this. Happens later on in Matthew's gospel. Jesus looks out and he sees people and he he sees that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Wandering around, brokenhearted people, purposeless people. Because the kingless life is a hard life. A kingless culture, like the culture we live in, a culture that has, has banished the king. It's not a culture where human beings can actually thrive and, and flourish. And again, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12 is about searching for a king. But it's also about how God leads us to a king. And it's also showing us how we can know if we've actually found the king in our lives. Two months ago, maybe you read about this, a guy from Morro Bay named Scott Godfrey, he, he won the largest lottery in California history, just shy of $700 million. He took a one-time payout before taxes of $496 million. And I just wanna ask you, how would you respond if that was you? I wanna ask you right now, did your heart start beating a little faster? Did your mind start racing a little bit just thinking what you might do if you had that kind of money to spend? You would expect a strong response in your own life or something like that, right? See, 
when Jesus is your king, there's a certain kind of response that's appropriate to that. A couple weeks ago, here's another example. We all remembered 80 years after the fact that we remembered the infamous attack on Pearl Harbor. And in this case, the appropriate response was quietness, uh, being sober and reflective, thinking about the lives that were lost. See, when Jesus is your king, there will be an appropriate response. And, and here's what I'm saying. Let me just put it out there straight. Jesus is the king. Amen? He's the king. We believe that here. But the real question that I want you to think about is, can anybody tell? Can anybody tell he's your king? When you go to work tomorrow, Will people be able to tell that the way you're celebrating this season called Christmas, which again, we need to remind ourselves is Jesus' birthday. Can they tell Jesus is your king? You know, on Christmas Eve, a lot of times we, we sing that song, uh, Oh Holy Night. You know the lyrics of that song? Part of the, the lyrics go like this. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till the king appeared and the soul felt its worth. A, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Say, so what's the response when the king appears? And the next line says, fall. Fall on your knees. Fall on your knees. That's what the wise men did. Did you notice that? And when the king appears... Do you fall on your knees? Since the last Sunday today, the last Sunday before Christmas, and I think what Matthew wants to challenge all of us to do is to make sure that our celebration of Christmas this year is actually about the true, the only king. Anyone, you know, anyone can say, Jesus is my king. The real question, is he truly your king? Does does your life show that he's your king? And we're gonna look at this story, working our way through these verses by asking three questions. If you're taking notes, uh, you can find those questions on the app um, or you can just write it down, um, you know, take it down in your own phone. Follow along in your copy uh, of God's word. First question is this, who's searching for the king? Who's searching for the king? And again, I wanna remind you, roll it back a couple weeks when we looked at Matthew's genealogy. You'll remember we talked about this, how Matthew's genealogy surprised his readers because Matthew included people we would never expect to find in a king's ancestry.com family tree. They just shouldn't have been there. But the reality is Matthew takes the surprise and in Matthew 2, he just takes it to a whole nother level. Matthew shocks us in these verses by showing us Gentile seekers who did not worship the one true God, people who practice a kind of, of worship that the Old Testament actually forbids, and he says these are the people who are searching for Jesus. See, Matthew also, as he's doing this, shocks us by showing us that the people we would expect to be searching for Jesus, looking for the king, well, they aren't, and they don't really care. If you look at verse one, again, this is actually in the ESV, which is a little bit more literal translation. It includes something I want you to notice. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. That's Matthew's way of saying surprise. 
pay attention, behold. The NIV doesn't include that because you know we don't usually walk around saying to each other, behold, right? If you wake up tomorrow morning and you, know, you say to your wife, behold, she's gonna wonder what happened last night while you were sleeping. Something's wrong, right? We don't talk like that, but, but it's a word that says to the people reading, this is something different. Pay attention, notice this. Now, why is it a surprise? Well, let me tell you about these wise men, about these magi. I'll start by clearing some things up about them so we understand who they really are. And, and I really do like this close to Christmas hate to mess up in your nativity sets, but I have to tell you the truth. The wise men were not there. They, they just weren't there at Christmas. They would have started their journey, you know, when Jesus was born, but they were coming from so far away. It would have taken at least several months for them to arrive, maybe as long as two years. And so here's a pro tip for Christmas decorations. Just take the wise men out of your manger scene, okay? You can like put them across the room to show <laughs> that they're on the way, you know, that helps to get the truth across. I know it's gonna, it's gonna really annoy the manger scene people in your house, but it's what the Bible actually tells us. Um, you know, if you wanna really be accurate, what you should do is like bring the wise men back out in June for Christmas part two. That would probably get the idea across because they're not, they're not there when Jesus is born. Second, there weren't three of them. There were not three wise men. We assume there were three and this is just based on the fact that there are three gifts mentioned, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But notice Matthew never gives a number, right? And so it's most likely scholars say that a caravan of traveling astrologers would have included scores of people, maybe even a few hundred people, magi, along with their wives and their kids and their servants. You know, also it says in verse three, they disturbed the whole city. So like, think about it, three guys on camels, probably not gonna do that. It's probably this very large entourage traveling across the wilderness. And then the third thing is we don't know their names. Now, some of you have been to Christmas plays and you have heard them referred to as Gaspar and Melchior and Balthazar, but we don't really know who they are. Their names aren't anywhere in the Bible. That's kind of a tradition added later by someone we don't know about. I did hear about a little boy who was one of the three wise men in a Christmas play. He was the third guy and the first one came up to the baby Jesus with his gift and said, I bring gold. And then the second one walked up and said, I give myrrh. And then this third one walked up and said, Frank sent this. <laughs> so maybe his name was Frank. I, I'm not really sure. So who were these guys? I've told you some about who they weren't. Well, their title actually indicates that they were part of the Persian priestly ruling class. They, they would have served like as uh, elite advisors to Persian kings. And here's the way they did that. They did this through astrology. They, they would study the stars and the constellation. They got their guidance for life through what we call astrology. And that is actually at the heart of Matthew's surprise. He's telling you pagan sorcerers are searching for Jesus. Wizards want to worship Jesus. I mean, maybe... Just imagine like Gandalf and Dumbledore show up at your manger scene. They're worshiping the baby Jesus. And kids, I'm just telling you, if that's what you wanna do, you know, you can tell them, Pastor Mike said it's okay. It's sort of like the wise men coming to do. But here's the real point. What they do with their lives, God explicitly forbids. 
God calls what they do, he calls it an abomination in Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 12. The prophet Isaiah denounces them in Isaiah 47, 13. You go to the book of Acts in the New Testament in chapter eight, chapter 13, you'll see the apostles also condemning these, these dark arts. The entire Bible marks people like the Magi as sinners. And that's Matthew's point. Matthew's point is that they were the exact kind of people you would not expect to be searching for the king, but they were the exact kind of people that God wanted in his family. So we, we, we tend, don't we, to write certain people off? Who, who do you write off? We, we probably all have some different people that we tend to think are lost causes and you know, they don't really belong, you know, in the church. We all tend to write people off sometimes, but here's the thing, God does not. God doesn't. God reaches, God draws, God seeks, God woos people. He is seeking worshipers from all people because he is the God of all people. And some of you are really like this, but they're gonna be, there's not gonna be worshipers from Hogwarts, even, even from Slytherin, you know? God wants all peoples to come. He wants all peoples. And that actually is part of what makes the next thing stand out because in Matthew's story, it's not just who is searching, it's also he's pointing out who is not searching for the king. Herod is disturbed, it says in verse three, by this threat to his throne. And so he calls for the Jewish religious leaders. That's verse four. He asked them where the king was to be born. And notice these men know it immediately. They don't have to look it up. They don't have to go to their books. It's right there on the tip of their tongues. Verses five and six say, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. The Jewish religious leaders, they all know the answer. That's kind of an interesting thing. Matthew refers to the chief priests. He refers to the teachers of the law. If you wanna kind of get a little bit of an analog for us today, you, you might think of them sort of like the Democrats and the Republicans, because one group, uh, the teachers of the law, they were like the conservatives. They were also called the Pharisees. The other group uh, would have been called the Sadducees. They were, they were like the liberals who have right, we have left. And it's interesting, they had very different theology, but they came together in their religion in this one way. They both had little interest in actually finding the king. They, they know they know that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem because Micah's prophecy, Micah 5.2, makes this crystal clear. They know the truth, but they cannot be bothered to walk just a handful of miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It's actually only about six miles from where they were to get to where Jesus was. By contrast, the Magi, they don't know God at all, but they travel across the world searching for the king. And here's what Matthew is doing. Remember I told you, the Gospel of Matthew is aimed at the Jewish people, aimed at convincing the Jewish people that Jesus is their Messiah. He is their long-awaited king. Matthew is prodding the Jewish people here. He is saying to them, look, behold, this is your king. But the Gentiles, they have more interest than you do. By the time 
Matthew writes this gospel. He, Gentiles are flooding into the kingdom of God. This is decades, a few decades later. Flooding in. Peoples from all parts of the world are coming to Jesus, but not many Jewish people. Not many of the people who had the, the deepest access to the word of God. Still like that sometimes. Sometimes the people who are closest have the hardest hearts. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes the more you know the Bible, the more arrogant and proud you become, the more self-righteous you become, the more you look down on the people outside. Sometimes the more you know, the more you become resistant to the work of the Holy Spirit. You don't think you need to repent, it's everybody else. It's all of those people, they're the problem, not you. See, Matthew chapter two, just like Matthew chapter one is all about God's grace, and Matthew is just showing us he, God's gonna do whatever it takes to reach anyone, even pagans far from God. God wants everyone in his family, even idol-worshiping astrologers. He wants them to come. And just think about, just think about the gospels. What picture we get of Jesus the King. Just start with the like guest list at Jesus' birthday party. We, we see shepherds showing up. They were the lowest of the low of the low in that culture. Everybody looked down on them. They were people at the bottom who on the outside and then in contrast you have the pagan astrologers these are Persian elites these are wealthy intellectuals they worship the wrong God they're people at the top and they're on the outside and it doesn't matter Jesus is the friend of sinners he loves all sinners on the top on the bottom on the inside on the outside Business sinners like tax collectors, sexual sinners like prostitutes, upright religious sinners like some of us, people who have never darkened the door of the church, who stay as far away from religion as they could. It doesn't matter. Jesus welcomes them all. Amen. And that's how we want it to be here, here at Southwinds. You know, as pastor of this church, and I've been here almost 19 Years, some of you are getting really, really old. Um, uh, I probably know more about the stories of the people in this church than maybe anyone else here. And yet I, I know I don't know the half of it. I, I don't know so much. Only God knows the full story of everyone in the Southwinds family. But I do know. I do know there are people in our church family who have been just like these magi who have actually practiced what we would call sorcery, witchcraft, dark arts. There are people here. That's been part of their story. We have people here who at one time in their lives have actually sold their bodies. There are people here who've had abortions, people here who have cheated on their taxes and cheated on their spouses. There are people here who have abused others and people here who have been abused. There are people here who have stolen from other people and people who've stolen in business practices. There are alcoholics here and rageaholics here and sexual addicts and, and people who are addicted to their religious pride. All here, all here. You know, we, we, we like to say around here, Southwinds, no perfect people allowed. And 
I am so glad, aren't you? The everyone is welcome at the king's table. But you need to search for him. You need to seek him. And so Matthew is just showing us this contrast. Pagan sorcerers, wizards, they are searching for the king while God's own people are not. But, but there's also this other contrast that Matthew shows us because he's also telling us at the same time there is someone else who is searching and his name is Herod, King Herod. He tells us in verse three that Herod is disturbed when these strange seekers show up searching for the king of the Jews. Why, why? Well, he's the king of the Jews and he wants to stay the king. Herod was actually one of the worst tyrant kings Israel ever had. He, he had a kind of a part Jewish heritage mixed with some other ethnicities, but he was really fundamentally just a Roman puppet. I'll tell you three things about Herod. Uh, just a nasty, nasty guy. First of all, Herod was a narcissist. He, he was this guy, he, maybe the most successful uh, positive thing about him is he was a builder. He accomplished a lot, but he built these massive ornate palaces, temples with his name all over them. It was all about him. In fact, even today, when you see Jewish people praying at the wall, the wailing wall, that was the wall, part of the temple that Herod built. You know, his, his work still stands to this day. The Jewish tradition uh, said that when David was running from Saul, at one point he hid out in a cave in a place called Masada. Herod said, you know what? If the greatest king we've ever had hid out in Masada, then I'm gonna one-up him by living there and living there in luxury. So he just built this immense palace fortress there. It was out in the desert. They didn't have any water, so he had to build this enormous cistern system. It was so big that one rainfall came one time, it collected enough water to supply 10,000 people for 10 years. Herod figured out how to preserve dates and figs so well out there in Masada that archeologists in the 1940s excavated this area and found one of Herod's storerooms still filled with food he'd stored 2,000 years earlier. Herod was also psychotically paranoid about losing power. Uh, among other things, he, he once had his, his wife, the wife that he had then killed because he thought she was conspiring against him. And for good measure, he also killed her mother and her brother. A few years later, he had all three of his sons killed for the same reason. He felt like they were a threat. When he was inaugurated as king, he invited all of his family's enemies uh, to a festival like as a show of peace and then ambushed and killed them. The Emperor Augustus once said, it would be better to be Herod's sow than Herod's son. And it's kind of interesting, that English play, those two words that sound similar, kind of mimics the Greek because the weird word for sow and the word for sons are almost sound the same in Greek as well. Probably the craziest thing about Herod, on his deathbed, he ordered the military uh, to take captive dozens of wealthy citizens so that at the moment he died, they would be executed because he wanted the land to mourn his passing. He knew nobody was gonna grieve his death. So he figured if he killed enough people, people would be weeping and it would sort of sound like they were weeping for him. Well, thankfully, the military, once Herod died, refused to carry that one out. 
Last thing I'll say is Herod was really only concerned about himself. He was a terrible ruler who oppressed and exploited everyone just for his own selfish purposes. Once uh, he was short on money and he had the 45 wealthiest citizens rounded up on trumped up charges and he had them executed so he could seize their estates. That was how, that was how Herod solved his debt crisis. That was how Herod stuck it to the 1%, you know. But it wasn't just them. Herod took from everyone. He took about half of everything the common man made. Another 12.5% went to Caesar. That would mean that like when a, a fisherman like the disciples showed up on shore with their catch, there would be a tax collector like Matthew or maybe like Zacchaeus who would be there to take Herod's portion and, and then take Caesar's portion and then some for himself. And that just meant by the time everything had t- was taken, sometimes you were, you were giving, uh, paying as much as 75% in, in taxes. At one point in Herod's reign, the Sanhedrin sent a delegation to Caesar saying that Herod had reduced Israel to a land of helpless beggars. That's Herod. He was a terrible, evil person. But, but Herod actually got it. Herod understood that when the true king appears, that means I'm not the king. That's why so many people oppose Jesus. He's the king. That means I'm not. Say I'm not. He's the king. We're not. You know, different people oppose Jesus in different ways. Look at the next couple verses. Matthew uh, chapter two, this is verses seven and eight. Say, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And what we see in these verses is a reminder that, that some people, like Herod, oppose Jesus actively. They actively reject him as king. They say, he's not my king. I don't believe in him. I don't believe he's the son of God. But other people oppose Jesus Passively, and we sort of kind of see this with Herod too. They may claim Jesus as their king, but in reality, they stay in control of their lives. And here's the connection I'm making. Like Herod, these people who oppose passively say they want to worship him. Did you notice that? Herod was lying, of course. But a lot of people say they want to worship Jesus. Maybe some of you. They come to church on Sunday and sit in chairs like you sit and you say you wanna worship Jesus, but that's not at all what you're doing with your life. See, when you are your own king, whether you say you are or not, you are in opposition to Jesus. And we all do this, right? Just like Herod, we resist giving Jesus control. It it comes out, sort of leaks out in so many ways. And sometimes it's so subtle, we don't even realize what we're doing. But the truth is we are saying, my life is mine. And we're saying, my my body is mine. We're we're saying, "My, my time is mine and my money is mine. I mean, how many of us, not asking for a raise of hands here, but... How many of us have just gotten married and we never actually truly sought God's direction? How many of us have taken jobs and changed jobs and we bought homes and we bought cars and we say Jesus is our king, but we've never actually ever prayed and asked Jesus if this was the wise thing to do or not, if this is what he wanted us to do or not. Do you understand the Bible says if you name Jesus as king, your life is not your own. 
Your life is not your own. Your body is not your own. Doesn't matter what the culture says. Your time is not your own. Your money, not yours. He's the king. If Jesus is the king, your king, then he tells you what to do. You don't get to decide that with your life. But you're saying, well, Mike, where do you get that? Now it's in the Bible. Actually, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Listen to this. Paul writes, you are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Jesus paid for you. He shed his blood on the cross for you. His body was broken on the cross for you. He paid for you. Therefore, honor God with your body. And that doesn't just mean your physical self. It means everything that you are and have. You know, so many of us say we're Christ followers, but we, we, we really in life, in life see that as kind of a Sunday thing, maybe just a Sunday morning thing, Monday to Saturday, the way we really live really just says, this is my life. It says, this is my money, this is my house, this is my world, this is my career. And I don't really want practically Jesus as king. What I really want is for Jesus to be around, available to advise me, right? I want Jesus to be available when a crisis strikes so he can help me with my problems. I want Jesus to be my consultant. I can just call on him, you know, when I have a need. I can ask him for answers when I need answers, but I don't really want him to be my king. But here's the thing, Jesus does not in any way permit that. Matthew 16, 24, listen to what Jesus said one time, and he said this more than once in his ministry. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple, say whoever. That's kind of a universal right there, okay? Whoever, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, must take up their cross, must follow me. Deny self, take up a cross, that's a way of saying be willing to die. In other words, a king demands total allegiance. And Jesus, Matthew is showing us, he's not just the king of the Jews, he's the king of the whole world. He's, he's the king of every life. And here's the reality. You may be here today and you say, well, I don't believe any of this stuff. It doesn't, this doesn't apply to me. Yeah, it does. Here's the thing. Jesus created everything. He's the king of everything. And whether you bow the knee to him or not, he's the king. He's the king. He's your king. Whether you recognize it or not, he's the ruler. That's what it means to be the king. You know, a lot of times we, we go shopping. You know, maybe this has even happened to you this season. You're walking like through the mall. I know we don't do that even very much more these days, you know, but some of you remember years ago when you used to walk through the mall at Christmas time, um, they would play Christmas music, right? You've been in stores, you know, Starbucks. They're playing Christmas carols, right? And maybe you've heard in a place like this where people are just gathered doing their business, maybe you've heard the song, Joy to the World. And you know the lyrics, Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. And do you think that the people who are hearing that, maybe even humming along, maybe even they've heard the words, they know the words, do they have any clue? Do, do we have any clue? 
Is there any area in your life where you are still king? You've not submitted that area of your life to Jesus. So here's a real question. Where in your life are you like Herod? One of my favorite scholars and writers is a man named John Stott. And he, he wrote once that once you understand what Jesus claims, there are only three responses that have actual intellectual integrity. Once you've seen what Jesus claims and you understand it, he said, either one, you run in fear, or two, you attack him in anger, or three, you fall on your knees in worship. That's the only options. Matthew's story of the wise men of the Magi call us to, to search for the king and, and when we find him, to give our lives to him without reservation. And, and, and then when we do what all of us do, when we at times take control of our lives back and we do things in defiance of the king, then him being our king means that we stop and we repent and we receive his forgiveness with humble hearts. Is Jesus your king? And if he's not, if he's not today, will you follow the example of the Magi and search for him and, until you find him? That actually is our, our second question. How do you find the king? I mean, how did the Magi find the king? You know, how did they like put all of this together? You know, a star pointing to a king. I mean, how did this happen? Well, the short answer is that God revealed it to them, but, but how did God reveal it? Well, here, here's a possible answer. The Magi most likely come from Persia where God sent his people into exile hundreds of years earlier. You can read the book of Daniel and that book shows us that there were men like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego uh, who lived there. And, and if you read closely, you'll see these were wise men. They were, they were Magi of that day and they would have, as Jewish believers, they would have probably shared the writings of Moses, the writings of the prophets with the Persian people. These writings, of course, were full of prophecies about the Messiah. And there's one prophecy the Magi very likely would have known that was especially relevant to Jesus' birth. It's the, the story of a prophet named Balaam. You can find this and read it for yourself in Numbers 22 through 24. It goes like this. There was an enemy king, an enemy king against Israel. His name was Balak, and he was afraid of Israel, so he wanted to hire this prophet named Balaam to come and, and curse the Israelites. And Balaam begins the journey to do this because Balak's paying a lot of money. He begins this journey on his donkey. Uh, the, the King James Version calls it Balaam's ass. And he's gonna go to this place where he can see the people of Israel and he can pronounce a curse over them. But God doesn't want this to happen. And so God sends an angel to stand in Balaam's way. And the donkey actually can see the angel, sword in hand, Balaam can't. And so the donkey veers off the path and, and Balaam can't see this and so he's mad. He, he begins to beat the donkey. Eventually the angel moves and the donkey continues down the road. And then a little while later, the angel reappears standing in the middle of this like narrow path with you know, two stone walls. It's right there, there's nowhere to turn. And the donkey veers a little bit, smashes Balaam's leg against one wall and Balaam curses and he, he beats the donkey again. In verses 26 to 30 of chapter 22, it says, then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam and he was 
angry and he beat her with his staff. It's like he gets so mad, he goes all Old Testament on the donkey. Verse, uh, verse, 20, uh, verse 28 says, then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Now the story's getting funny now because the next verse says, Balaam answered the donkey. You have made a fool of me. Well, actually, Balaam, you're kind of doing this right now because you're talking to a donkey. You have made a fool of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? And Balaam says, no, you know. And then God opens Balaam's eyes to see the angel and Balaam realizes that his ass has saved his life. <laughs> and so instead of cursing Israel, he pronounces blessing over Israel. And here's a part of that blessing. This is in chapter 24, verse 17. He says, a star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. This meant that a king was gonna come one day who would rule the world, bring blessing to all the nations on earth. And these wise men from Persia, these magi, they, they might have been familiar with, with this prophecy. And so when God somehow causes this unusual heavenly activity to take place, they say, this is what we've been waiting for. Let's go see. Now, we don't know exactly what the star of Bethlehem was. There are a lot of scholars and scientists who have studied and, and speculated different things. Some people have speculated that it was the alignment of Saturn and Jupiter coming together. This actually takes place. We know the exact days, three times during the year of 7 BC. Other people think it was a comet uh, kind of moving across the sky. I, I think it could have been one of those things, but I think it's most likely that God just did something supernatural. I mean, it's his universe, right? He created it. He could do whatever he wants. And sometimes we learn from this, God guides people through stars. Sometimes, as this happened in your life, God guides through the, the providential ordering of your circumstances. You know, right now, all across the Islamic world, it is a documented phenomenon in these places where the gospel is explicitly forbidden, these places where Christi Christians, when they're discovered, are, are put to death. It is documented that Jesus is appearing in dreams to Muslims. In the middle of the night when people are sleeping, Jesus is introducing himself to people and telling them, I'm the king. You need to follow me. Muslims are coming to faith. It's, it's, it's like a star. I know of a pastor years ago, was in the Navy. I was out drinking one night. He got in his truck, you know, a little, you know, ended up falling asleep and he crashed into a tree on the side of the road. When he came to, he looked up at the tree and there was a sign in the tree. Somebody put this sign in the tree. It said, believe in the Lord Jesus. And he did. <laughs> he did. I, I know someone, uh, someone who came to faith in Jesus when they were high. I'm not suggesting you, you get high <laughs> so you can come to Jesus. Not what Pastor Mike said. Okay, but it happens because God is sovereign. He's God, he's the king. He could do whatever he wants. 
Most often, of course, we should always keep this in mind, God guides through his revealed word, the Bible, the scriptures. I mean, how many times has this happened in your life where you pick up a Bible and you're in that moment maybe lost and purposeless, you're confused, you don't have hope, you don't know what to do, and you open the Bible and you read scriptures and maybe you thought it was kind of a random, a random passage. And you met the king. There's Jesus, like a star. Maybe you're here today and you don't know where to start. I'm just telling you, find a Bible. If you don't have one, we'll give you one. Or you can, you can load like thousands of versions of the Bible on a version app. It's actually free. It won't cost you a thing. Open your Bible, whatever kind of Bible you have, to the Gospel of John and just start reading. Just read one chapter every day. See what happens. And I'll warn you, I'm telling you ahead of time, if you do that, it's gonna change everything. You, you will meet the king. See, here's the bottom line in all of this. I hope you see it as it runs through this story. The bottom line really is ultimately we don't find God. Ultimately, God finds us and God guides us to himself. That leads to the third question. How do you know you found the king? In other words, what's the appropriate response? Look again at the response of the Magi. After listening to the king, this is verse nine and 10, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Verse 11 says, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense, and of myrrh. What happens when you find the king? Let me point out some things for you. You can maybe write these down and reflect on them and see how they apply to your life. First, when you find the king, you worship with great joy. That always happens. Worship, worship, joy. That, those things show whether or not someone has found the king. Now, these men, they travel from like the other end of the world, you know, to bring their worship. But they also brought precious treasures with them, expensive, extravagant, sacrificial, generous gifts. And, and that leads to the second thing. When you find the king, you become generous. It's inescapable. It, it will happen. True worship always leads to generosity. These wise men, they they brought gold. They brought uh, frankincense or incense. This would have been a gum that was taken from the bark of certain exotic trees that had a number of different properties that were useful back then. They brought myrrh, which was a perfume. Uh, Today, it's so rare, it would cost around $10,000 a bottle. These are very expensive, very impressive gifts. And here's the truth. These gifts saved Jesus' life. You say, what, what are you talking about? Well, you're gonna have to come back next Sunday to hear the second half of chapter two in Matthew, but we're gonna talk next Sunday about how Jesus is going to have to go on the run with his family uh, to escape Herod, and they're gonna go to Egypt, and he's gonna spend maybe up to a couple of years of his life hiding in Egypt. How, how do Jesus' parents, poor where they are, become refugees in another country and live in Egypt and survive? Well, most likely the answer was on all the wealth that was provided 
for them by the Magi. The gifts of the Magi saved Jesus' life, which in a sense means the gifts of those Magi saved your life through Jesus, save your kids' lives, save your, your grandkids' lives. That's the, just the ripple effect of those who bring their treasures to God. God uses them. Then verse 12, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When their visit was over, this angel visits them in a dream and tells them not to go back to Herod. And, and, and they, they, they did what the angel said, even though it was at risk to their lives if Herod caught them. God said it, they did it, he's the king. And so this tells us you also know you found the king when you obey the king. The wise men obeyed God, they obeyed him quickly. So, so how do you know that you've actually truly found the king? Well, finding the king always leads to worship filled with joy, and that worship will express itself in sacrificial generosity. That worship will, will show up in obedience. And I just wanna ask as we close this, what does, what does obedience mean for you right now? See, if, if you're here today, I'll tell you, if you're here today and you've never met the king, here's what obedience means. It means that you repent of your sin and you turn in faith to Jesus Christ and you receive him as king, as Lord, as your savior. The Bible says Jesus commands people everywhere to repent. The king's calling you to repentance. He's calling you into life in his kingdom, life with goodness and purpose, life with joy. But what if you've, already met the king, what does obedience mean? Well, it can mean a number of things. I'm pretty confident in saying this. Uh, obedience means that for some of us today, you need to forgive someone who has sinned against you. Jesus has forgiven your sins. He commands you to forgive those who've sinned against you. And, and I, know, I, I know the story some of you have. Many of you have done this. You've obeyed him. You've found the freedom that comes from trusting God and allowing him to set you free from bitterness. You, you, you know that joy. But I also know there are some of you sitting here right now and you're sitting here with bitterness in your heart toward other people. And I'm asking you, is Jesus your king? Because if he is your king, the king says to you, leave your gifts when you're at worship. Leave those gifts at the altar and you go and you seek to reconcile those people who have hurt you. Don't let bitterness continue to tear your heart apart. That's what obedience may mean for you. For some of us, obedience I'm sure means we need to start trusting the king enough to be generous. It's kind of an interesting thing. You know, if we say Jesus is our king, that means by definition that we are saying that I'm trusting him to forgive my sins and save my life for eternity, right? And then people who say I'm trusting Jesus for my eternity turn right around and, and kind of say with their lives, well, I can't trust him enough to give generously out of what he's provided for me. Does obedience mean you need to start practicing generosity. 
I think at this time in the, the, the life of our culture that we continue to go through, I think obedience to the king for some people means taking gathering with God's people seriously. And of course, I wanna keep saying, I'm not talking about people who really have a true need to stay home during this time for their protection, the protection of their health. I'm just, I'm talking about people who should gather talking about people who go all kinds of other places, travel, enjoy recreation, and then sometimes, this has actually happened to every one of our pastors, they tell pastors, oh, yeah, I can't come to church yet. Oh, okay. Saw your Facebook post on Disneyland. How was the trip? Um, And so maybe that's you. Maybe you're here and you need to show up more. Maybe this isn't for anyone here. Maybe it's for the people that are taking this in uh, on, uh, online. I mean, I could keep going. There's lots of areas where Jesus could be calling us to uh, obedience. But here's the point. I'm keeping on saying it. I'm gonna keep on saying it to the end of this. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. And when you find the king, This story tells us you find great joy and that joy leads to worship and true worship always expresses itself in generosity and generosity and worship always expresses itself in obedience. Let me tell you a story as I close. Thomas Nelson, during the Revolutionary War, was the governor of Virginia at one time. He's actually one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and in about 1781, he was leading an army of the colonials uh, chasing after Cornwallis and his army. Cornwallis was the general uh, at the head of the British army. Uh, the British army marched into Yorktown. They were trying to get away. Uh, they were going to meet with the British Navy at this point and they were gonna help them escape but the French Navy comes in, helps the colonials out and they got Cornwallis while it's trapped in Yorktown. And they were shelling the British. And at one point in this battle, uh, Thomas Nelson, he's leading the colonials and he goes and tells the soldiers who are manning the cannons, he says to them, you see that brick house over there in Yorktown? It's the big house. He said, it's the biggest, most impressive house in town. It's Cornwallis's headquarters. He said, it's also, it's also my house. And then he told those men manning the cannons, I want you to open up the guns on my house. Historians say that the very first shot went through a window in the house. It careened right across a table where the British high command was meeting. Nelson said, the cost of freedom is tear down my house. And that's what your king said too. Why do we give him everything? Why does he deserve this wholehearted response? Why is that the way we should react when we find the king? Well, the answer is quite simply, look at what the king has done for us. His crown was actually thorns. His throne was actually a tree. At his death, there wasn't a star, there was only darkness. Jesus, our king, gave us everything. And we should give him, in response, everything we are and everything we have. This is God's word for us today, Southwinds. All God's people, will you join together and say,
Amen. Amen. Will you pray? Let's bow together. Let's pray.